Hey, howdy, hey. Welcome, my dear friends. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Perry, and you're listening to another stupid stupendous episode of Hello, Mr. Burns, a research podcast where I talk about old school Simpsons episodes to see what we can learn from them. (gasps) 239 pounds. Oh, I'm a blimp. Why are all the good things so tasty? The episode we're tackling today is a personal favorite of mine. Season one, episode 10, Homer's Night Out. As always, we'll start with a super duper quick episode synopsis, list out new and notable characters, And then we're just going to get straight into some good old research and did you knows. So in this episode, we're going to be tackling the depictions of women in The Simpsons. We're also going to do a little jiggy pop around belly dancing and Shakira's hips. But for our big main topic, we're going to be transforming from a Simpsons podcast into a true crime podcast. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, I have the best Hollywood scandal I've ever come across. We've got sex, lies, rape, millionaire, chorus girls, and a very, very public murder. It is all here, my pets. Who doesn't love a good Hollywood scandal? All righty, Roo, toot toot. All aboard next stop, episode synopsis. So the episode starts with Bart purchasing a spy camera through a catalogue. Meanwhile, Homer goes to a buck's turn or a stag party or a bachelor's party, whatever you'd like to call it, at a local restaurant for his former assistant, who is now his supervisor. One last taste of bachelor freedom! Presenting Princess Kashmir, Queen of the Mysterious East. By complete coincidence, the rest of the family go for dinner at the same restaurant. So on his way back from the bathroom, Bart pokes his head into the door of the bachelor party, and takes a sneaky picture of Homer dancing with a belly dancer. Soon, all of Springfield has seen this picture, and humiliated and hurt, Marge throws him out of the house. What is the meaning of this? Uh, uh, Meaningless, Marge. Don't even attempt to find meaning in it. There's nothing between me and Princess Cashmere. Princess who? Homer ends up crashing on Barney's couch. After a night apart, Marge and Homer decide to have a talk, and Marge explains... I've been thinking, Homer, and you know what bothers me the most about this whole thing? You taught Bart a very bad lesson. Your boy idolizes you. Oh, he does not. Yes, he does, Homer. And when he sees you treating women as objects, he's going to think that it's okay. You owe your son better than that, Homer. So what should I do, Marge? Well, I think you should take Bart to meet this exotic belly person. I want him to see that she's a real human being with real thoughts and real feelings. I want Bart to see you apologize for the way you treated her. Okay, your wish is my command, my little... Do it! In an effort to right his wrong, Homer drags Bart from strip club to burlesque bar to exotic cabaret performance to find Princess Kashmir and apologize for objectifying her. At a burlesque performance, Homer finds Princess Kashmir and in the middle of apologizing to her, he falls on stage. After being recognized as that party guy from the photo, he is invited to join in the performance of the song, I Could Love a Million Girls. However, he realizes mid-performance that Marge is watching him on stage, and realizing what's happening, he decides to stop the performance to say this. I would rather feel the sweet breath of my beautiful wife on the back of my neck as I sleep than stuff dollar bills into some stranger's G-string. Marge, eyes full of tears, forgives him, and all is well. The end. 
Okay, so for this episode, the Simpsons writing staff said that they absolutely positively had to go around Hollywood taking pictures of strip clubs so they could research and get inspiration for the interior design of the strip clubs in Springfield. Sure, Jan research. This episode marks the first appearance of Princess Kashmir, who also goes by the stage name of April Flowers, whose real name is Shauna Tifton. So the script originally called for her to be called a stripper, but the censors decide that this was a little bit too much for children's TV shows, so she's called an exotic belly dancer. Also appearing for the first time in this episode is Carl. So in this episode, Lenny's voice is provided by Hank Azaria, and Carl's voice is provided by Harry Shearer, for the rest of the series, it would be the other way around. Alrighty, Rue, let's do some learning time. So first off the bat, let's explore the depictions of adultery and infidelity in The Simpsons. So for a children's show, The Simpsons does explore adultery and infidelity quite a bit. I mean, the last episode we saw Marge considering an affair with the silver-tongued, snail-munching, gyrating Jacques. And um, we do actually see other instances in later episodes involving Homer and some other women, including, but not limited to, Mindy and Laureline. So as far as Marge's reaction to this situation in this episode, we see her absolutely losing her marbles, not because she suspects Homer of having an affair, but because she dislikes that her husband has objectified a woman, setting a bad example for their son. I would say that Marge has a secure attachment style. (laughs) I know this because I'm single and I'm reading all the single girl books, including Attachment. So there's a very well-written article titled In a Gender in Springfield, The Roles of Women in the Simpsons. Unfortunately, I can't see the author's name, but they do say this about this scene and Marge herself. Marge becomes a feminist in this episode, but of a rather traditional, non-radical sort, objecting to dancing with strippers because it's demeaning to the strippers. See, Marge is angry that her husband is objectifying women and is part of the problem of misogyny. She is seeing it as her responsibility to educate him. Homer embarks on a journey to try to find Princess Kashmir to apologize to her and help Bart see that she's more than just a belly. So up until this point, I am completely in support of the message behind The Simpsons. The writers are showing us that Homer objectified a dancer and he's seeking to make amends. However, this episode makes a big mistake by presenting Princess Kashmir like this. Could you tell them a little bit about yourself? Well, um, my real name's Shauna Tifton. Uh-huh. My pet peeve is rude uh-huh. people. And my turn-ons include silk sheets and a warm fireplace. Thank you very much. <sighs> I'm shaking my head, y'all. You see, with Jacques, he was like a very well-rounded character with personality. He had looks. He was educated. And he had a bit of depth to him that made him a real 3D threat to the marriage. Princess Cash. Okay, actually, you know what? Let's call her by her real name, Shauna Tifton. Unfortunately, Shauna Tifton is presented as being entirely vapid and shallow. She immediately falls back into the stripper exotic dancer stereotype, existing only to dance for money and entertain men. I once read a journalist describing Miranda Kerr as having the personality of an aquarium wall. She was said to be more a product than a person and absolutely completely vacuous. I have this amazing quote from Miranda Kerr when asked how she feels about Victoria's Secret, you know, being a bad influence on young women. I can't feel bad about being who I am. Just like the girl next to me can't feel bad about being who she is. Because a rose can never be a sunflower. And a sunflower can never be a rose. By the way, guys, if you think that's me making fun of Miranda Kerr's voice, it's not. Listen, this is how she speaks. 
I've given away a few secrets. Um, the one secret I haven't given away is that my belly button um, is actually an innie, but it can be turned into an outie. Now, I am not a massive fan of Miranda Kerr. I think it's unfair to say that Miranda's personality was an aquarium wall because she was just there in that interview doing her job. Like, what is she going to say? Is she going to say, yes, Victoria's Secret is evil? God help me. Anyway, I feel that Princess Cashmere was presented as an aquarium wall throughout this episode. So another disappointment in this episode is the inspiring speech that Homer gives at the end to a crowd of men. Just listen to this. I have something to say to all the sons out there, to all the boys, to all the men, to all of us. It's about women and how they are not mere objects with curves that make us crazy. No, they are our wives. They are our daughters, our sisters, our grandmas, our aunts, our nieces and nephews. Well, not our nephews. They are our mothers. So yes, it's great that Homer's realising he's internalised misogyny and seeking to become a feminist ally, but, 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 I'm always reminded of that now infamous quote regarding domestic abuse and women who are murdered or go missing. So the original message said, she's someone's sister, mother, daughter, wife. Someone came along and corrected this to just read, she's someone. So the original image had good intentions. It was humanizing female victims of assault or abuse, but it still positions that a woman can only hold value because of her relationship to a man, not as her own person. Don't ask me. I'm just a girl. (laughs) So let's chat about some moida. The song at the end of this episode that Homer joins in on is called I Could Love a Million Girls, originally sung by Randy Newman. It's a very catchy bop indeed. But did you know that this song was the backdrop for a dramatic murder of a predatory millionaire architect by a mentally unstable railway tycoon heir over the alleged date rape of a famous model chorus girl? Huh. Guys, I came across this story and oh my god, I got sucked in by how fascinating it all was. So whenever you look up this song, there will always be something referring to how it tied to this true crime murder. Anyway, let's start. So our story starts with a lovely woman named Evelyn Nesbitt. So Evelyn Nesbitt was born in 1884 and was a famous model, actress and chorus girl. She was a huge celebrity at the time. She was like this old school supermodel. Although whenever I hear her name, I always think of Toy Story and Buzz when he loses his mind. You see the hat? I am Mrs. Nesbitt. On her rise to fame, Miss Nesbitt caught the eye of a super predator named Stanford White. He was a millionaire architect who was nearly three times her age when he met her. She was just 14, by the way. So when she was about 15 or 16, he offered to sponsor her and her mother and moved them into a fancy apartment in New York. So just going to stop here and say that this is an official trigger warning for sexual assault and rape. So let's have a look at who Stanford White was. Stanford White was an architect, most notable for the Arch in Washington State Park and the second iteration of Madison Square Garden. Along with his architecture and social status, White was also very well known for one thing, his predatory nature. He was referred to, almost comically, as a predatory satyr, with a desire for young girls and wild sex. It wasn't a secret in society at the time. I mean, after all, he adorned the top of Madison Square Garden with naughty nude statues. Despite being married with a son, White had an independent social life and often hosted parties at his house 
using intermediaries to disarm young women. Again, me butting in here just to unpackage by what I mean about intermediaries. I've known many a figure in the fashion and film industry who pull this same gambit. So these people are usually middle-aged men who paint themselves as the cool, funky host. They use these people who are intermediaries to vouch for them. So this intermediary is usually a woman who he will genuinely not prey on. So she becomes evidence that he's a safe person to be around. This girl will say to her friends and, you know, other women, no, 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 he's so cool, he's fine, nothing sus, he's never touched me. And she's being completely honest about it because he never has. So this guy will host parties where it's often free booze and drugs, and this girl will bring her friends being like, no, 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 he's cool, man, he's cool. Then once he gets one of the girls alone at this party, he'll make his move, often citing the alcohol or drugs for it. I have seen this little poster, I think it might be a t-shirt, where it says, that older man does not want to be your friend, and I'm going to hand it out at every fashion week. Okay, back to the moida. So, White had invited Nesbitt and his intermediary at the time, who was a woman named Edna Goodrich, to lunch at his multi-floor apartment. So in her memoir, Nesbitt described being overwhelmed by White's expensive furnishings and the luxurious apartment, and the luncheon was quite an extravagant affair. After a couple of hours of whining and dining, the party went up two flights of stairs to a room completely decorated in green, where a large red velvet swing was suspended from the ceiling. Nesbitt sat on the swing, and they spent the afternoon playing playground games. Not like squid games, but like, you know, fun, just pushing on the swing. There was a film made in 1955 called The Girl in the Red Velvet Swing, starring Joan Collins. Nesbitt was paid $10,000 to use her story, but... The script pretty much was a highly fictionalized version of her life. Originally, the studio had planned to put Marilyn Monroe in the title role, but um, Marilyn turned down the role and was suspended from the studio as a punishment. So White convinced Nesbitt's mother to go on holiday and invited Nesbitt over for dinner. It was just the two of them, and he capped off the night with a tour ending in his mirror room, which was a room in his house completely filled with mirrors um, with just one single green velvet sofa. After they drank more champagne, Nesbitt says she remembers changing into a yellow satin kimono at White's insistence and then remembers nothing else. It's suggested that this date rape was achieved using alcohol or drugs. Disgusting pig man. So after this happened, um, Nesbitt didn't cut White out of her life completely, Apparently, she still entertained him for dinners and everything like that. It's a little contentious as to what her relationship with her rapist was. Some say that they were good friends. Others say that they were secret lovers. Um, I guess we'll never know. So it was around this time that Nesbitt caught the eye of a man named Harry Kendall Thor. Thor was actually the son of a Pittsburgh coal and railroad baron, and he was heir to a $40 million fortune, which was huge back in the day. Actually, you know what? Even now, that's pretty big. He was known for his mental instability, his recklessness, and his completely self-indulgent life. That is a direct quote, by the way. Thor was utterly obsessed with Nesbitt. He went and saw her perform in The Wild Rose around 40 times. So even before he really got to know or even meet Nesbitt, Thor had developed this great hate towards Stanford White. So he believed that White was responsible for blocking Thor from certain social circles and believed, rightly so, that he was a womanizer who preyed on vulnerable young women. I mean, a rich man using his power to influence and prey on young women? Wow, glad we left that in the past. Thor arranged a meeting with Nesbitt, but decided to go with this whole weird, like, mysterious millionaire thing. 
like, um, what was the name of that TV show? Um, Joe Millionaire, right? Anyway, so he went for like the Joe Millionaire thing. So when he finally got introduced to Nesbitt, he no doubt put on like a giant fake moustache and introduced himself as Mr. Monroe while giving her lots of gifts and money. I mean, can you just imagine this little dweeb standing there with a giant fake moustache on being like, uh, no, my name is Mr. Monroe. Homer? Who is Homer? My name is Guy Incognito. So after a couple of months of giving her gifts and just basically fawning over her, he apparently did this whole like big reveal moment where he loudly declared, ha ha, I am not Monroe. I'm Harry Kendall Thor of Pittsburgh. And I bet you he like ripped off his moustache. He thought that Nesbitt would be absolutely flawed, um, but she didn't really react in the way that he thought she would because according to her, she'd been courted by many a rich man before. So another one didn't really phase her that much. So she's probably just like, oh, okay, cool. I don't know why she sounds like Miranda Kerr, but I'm sure Miranda Kerr has this problem as well with rich men. So Thor and Nesbitt started to uh, court, as it's called. So during their courting... Thor really butted heads with Nesbitt's mother, mainly owing to his unstable mental state. He did take the women across Europe on trips, and he eventually proposed to Nesbitt while on a trip to Paris. He really wanted um, Nesbitt to marry him, and he kept proposing to her over and over again. And she just kept saying no. So he did eventually propose to Nesbitt um, while on a trip to Paris, but Nesbitt knew all about Thor's weird obsession with female chastity Um, and knowing that she technically wasn't a virgin anymore because of what happened with White, she refused. Thor continued to interrogate her, asking, why are you saying no? Why are you saying no? Why don't you want to marry me? What's wrong with you? You got to understand that Nesbitt really came from nothing, you know, so she was really relying on bagging a rich man to help her family, but she knew how he would feel knowing she wasn't a virgin. She was thinking that not only would he probably dump her, he would absolutely ruin her reputation and she'd be shunned from high society. So after months of pressure and interrogation, Nesbitt finally broke down and decided to tell Thor about White's assault. It's said that he flew into a rage um, and strangely he blamed her mother for being an unfit parent and allowing this to happen to her. Around this time, the two decided to go on a trip across Europe. And um, this is where their Euro trip turned into a really scary, crazy kidnapping story. This is intense. So as Thor and Nesbitt continued their travel through Europe, he had this weird thing where he'd drag her to sites devoted to the cult of virgin martyrdom in an attempt to cleanse her. For example, in France, they went to the birthplace of Joan of Arc, and Thor wrote in the visitor's book, she would not have been a virgin if Stanford White had been around which is really creepy. I'm pretty sure Joan of Arc was like 12. Probably the worst of the worst happened in Austria. Thor took Nesbitt to a really creepy gothic castle where he kept the three servants in the other side of the castle and had himself and Nesbitt in isolated quarters at the opposite end. Thor locked Nesbitt in her room and then beat her with a whip and sexually assaulted her over a two-week period in a twisted attempt to cleanse her and punish her for what happened. After they returned back to New York, she told a few friends about what Thor had done to her in Austria, and when asked if she should marry him, they all responded in the same way. Do not do it. He is a dangerous man. You see, the problem is that poor Nesbitt realized that she would never be able to marry her rapist, Stanford White. He was too much of a womanizer, he was a human pile of dog shit, and he was already married, so he couldn't make an honest woman out of her. She wanted to escape a life of poverty, but... Where would she go? I mean, Thor was her only option. 
A little while later, Nesbitt had Thor knocking on her door. He said that he had reflected and prayed and spoken to God and was willing to forgive her relationship with White. Wow, what a man. He's willing to forgive her for being date-raped at 16. What a gentleman. Nesbitt married Thor in a black dress. And from the moment she was wed, she was kept like a bird in a gilded cage. She was forced to give up her career and instead spent her time isolated in giant mansions with his strict and super-religious mother. Instead of the entertainment and adventurous life Thor had promised her, she had to endure him obsessing over White. He became incredibly paranoid that White had mobsters from the Monk Eastman Gang of New York after him, and he spent weeks ruminating over what White had planned for him. Funnily enough, um, in reality, White had barely noticed Thor, He's been quoted as calling him a clown, and he nicknamed him the Pennsylvania Pug, a reference to Thor's baby face features. <laughs> it's a pretty cute nickname. In June 1906, the couple went to New York for a holiday. Thor said that he had tickets for the premiere of Mademoiselle Champagne, a show performed at the rooftop theatre of Madison Square Garden, which um, apparently Nesbitt found really interesting because he hadn't really showered her with gifts recently, and then all of a sudden he was like, surprise, we're going to New York. They first stop at the Cafe Martin for dinner before going to the theatre. And even though it was the height of summer in New York, Thor wore a really long black overcoat over his tuxedo and he refused to take it off. This guy is sounding more and more like a red pill neckbeard with his stupid trench coat and obsession with female virgins. He definitely was the kind of person to call a woman a female to their face. Just saying that. So the couple went and saw the show and it was great. Um, and around 11pm at night, the stage show was coming to a close, and this is where the cast perform I Could Love a Million Girls. So during this part, um, White appeared and took his place at a table customarily reserved for him, right at the front of the stage. Spotting his arrival, Thor did get up from his chair to approach him a few times, but every time he went to speak to him, he'd like chicken out and scuttle away and then come back again and then scuttle away. So just as the finale was finishing and the chorus was really reaching the crescendo of, of I Could Love a Million Girls, Thor marched up to White, whipped out a pistol, and from two feet away, fired three shots into White's head, killing him instantly. It is said that the shots completely blew his head off. This was in front of around 200 people. Thor whipped around to address the crowd, who originally thought it was a prank, and he said, I did it because he ruined my wife. He had it coming to him. He took advantage of the girl and then he abandoned her. You'll never go out with that woman again. Nesbitt fled the scene. She actually took up refuge with a friend of hers who was also another chorus girl for a couple of days. What would follow would be the greatest media circus of all time. This is a true cataclysmic collision of poor journalism and vilification of the female character. This murder has actually gone down in history as the first ever trial of the century. It was said that a person, a place, or event no matter how random or peripheral to the killing of White, was seized on by reporters and hyped as newsworthy copy. You can kind of see headlines being like, waitress who worked two blocks over said that she felt a chill down her spine the moment the song begun. That kind of stuff was making front page news. So Thor's first jury had to be sequestered, which was the first time in history this had ever happened. Thanks to his family's money, he was eventually found guilty by means of insanity, but he was held in kind of a prison where it was like a five-star room and he pretty much did whatever he wanted. Remember, his family were like millionaires, so 
can I say? Money talks. Throughout this entire case, Nesbitt was branded a succubus, with newspapers running headlines like, Woman whose beauty spelled death and ruin. And um, only one week after the shooting, a Nickelodeon film called Rooftop Murder was released and rushed into production by Thomas Edison himself. Nickelodeon, by the way, is like a small turn-of-the-century entertainment device where, for a nickel, you'd look through a viewfinder and watch a very short film, which was usually projected using flip cards. In Titanic, Leonardo DiCaprio mentions it when he kisses Kate Winslet's hand. I saw that in a Nickelodeon once and I always wanted to do it. (laughs) It is really difficult to tell what kind of a person Nesbitt was. You see... Her history is incredibly fractured and quite messy. See, some sources aim to vilify her character and blame her for what happened. One source says that she invited the assault because she sat on that velvet swing not wearing any underwear and White couldn't help himself. Sadly, Nesbitt's career never recovered. She ended up giving birth to a son named Russell William Thor in 1910, and she was adamant that he was Thor's biological son, although Thor throughout his life denied paternity. Even though the kid looked like him to a T, she eventually gave up saying a working girl could not fight the Thor millions. Her son actually went on to be a famous pilot who once raced against Amelia Earhart. So Thor never regretted what he did. 20 years after having taken White's life, Thor was quoted as saying, under the same circumstances, I'd kill him again tomorrow. When I looked up the song, I Could Love a Million Girls, Every single source mentioned how it was now associated with this bleak moment in history and the very dramatic murder in front of hundreds of people during a musical performance. I have to say that it's a chilling story to go with a somewhat pig man of a song, but let's save that analysis of the song for another day. All right, let's lighten the mood really quickly with something that we can all get behind. It's belly dancing. Let's just have a minute or so before we finish the episode discussing the GOAT of all time, Shakira. Most famously, her dancing in Whenever, Wherever, and of course, Hips Don't Lie. By the way, I say GOAT like um, like the greatest of all time. No shade at Shakira for singing like a goat, which she does, but it's fine because she sings like a talented pitch-perfect goat. In case you didn't know, Shakira is an incredible belly dancer and musician. And all-around awesome person. Except she has been named and shamed in the recent Pandora Papers along with Elton John and Ringo Starr, so I don't know. Anyway, so when Shakira was four, her dad took her to a local Middle Eastern restaurant where she first heard the traditional drum used in Middle Eastern music. She climbed up on the table and started dancing and said that the experience made her realise that she wanted to be a performer. She also mentioned in an MTV interview that she learned how to do belly dancing by trying to flip a coin with her belly. Try it, it's actually so hard. And on that note, we come to the end of another episode of Hello, Mr. Burns and our investigation into Homer's Night Out. And who would have thought we'd become a true crime podcast so quickly? Not me. (laughs) Not me, buddy. Not me. Anyway, so the depictions of women in The Simpsons in the 90s weren't great. And it does show how far we've come in 30 years, Wow, three decades. Oh, God, I'm getting old. Jeepers. But there's still a long way to go. I also found it really interesting how a boppy, somewhat sexist Broadway song became the soundtrack for America's first sensationalized murder. And um, 
please send me the videos of you flipping coins on your belly because pourquoi non? The next episode I'll be covering is season one, episode 11. It's called The Creeps of Wrath. And yes, we will take another dive back into the baguette-loving, moustache-twelling world of French people in The Simpsons. Stay tuned for another cracker, guys. And as always, keep watching the skis.